please turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, as we get nearer and nearer the cross, we saw last week that we're actually going to see really four stages as we make our way to the crucifixion. We saw last week Jesus Christ's arrest. Uh, Today we are going to see Jesus's trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Then we will see in a couple weeks his trial before Pilate, and then Pilate uh, uh, releasing Jesus uh, off to be crucified. Uh, But today we come to that uh, second part of that four-part process. We come to Jesus's trial uh, before the Sanhedrin, Jesus's trial before his own Jewish people. Uh, So with that introduction out of the way, please give attention now to the reading of God's holy inspired, and life-giving word. Starting in verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Might he write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? O Lord God, we come to a difficult passage where we see the mistreatment, this horrific mistreatment of the Lord of glory our Lord and our Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Sober us and help us, O Lord, through this passage to consider the lengths that our Lord has gone through to save us sinners. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We mentioned a few weeks back when we looked at Jesus preparing for the Passover back in verse 12. Uh, really what begins Jesus' last day on the earth. 
Uh, remember, uh, for the Jewish calendar, for the Jewish people, the day began at sunset. And so really, with the Passover began the last day, Good Friday, last day Jesus would be on earth. And we said back then, when Jesus was preparing the Passover uh, in the upper room for him and his disciples uh, to partake in, that all the gospel writers, all four of the gospel writers, seem to slow down when it comes to Jesus' last day on earth, at least before his resurrection. In most of the Gospels and all four of the Gospels, really what you have up until that last day is sort of a quick run through with Jesus's ministry with little pit stops in between. And a lot of times the material is not organized in chronological fashion, but each writer having a particular theological bent and purpose would sort of organize the material thematically in many ways. But with all four of the Gospel writers, when it comes to the last day of Jesus's life, they slow down down. And they give us that chronological, every little chronological detail in Christ's life. What this tells us is that in the minds of the gospel writers, this is the most important aspect of Christ's ministry. Jesus Christ has come to die. Jesus Christ has come to die for sinners. And the gospel writers understand this so much that they feed us every little crumb of his last day that will lead up to his crucifixion. From his arrest, which we saw last week, to his trial, which we will see this week, all the way up to his crucifixion, when we will know the exact hour at which Jesus Christ will die. The gospel writers want us to drink in every detail of Christ's last day on this earth. And certainly as we slow down and contemplate our Lord's last day on the earth and his death, we are to contemplate him. We are to think on Christ. We are to contemplate his work and and what he has done for us by dying on the cross for our sins. However, in doing that, the authors are also forcing us As those sinners that Christ came to purchase with his blood, they are forcing us to slow down and to consider and contemplate ourselves as the sinners that placed our Lord upon that bloody cross. We are meant to slow down to contemplate the depravity of man that would treat the Lord of glory in such a despicable fashion. And that is really what is in full view here in our passage, the depravity of man, the fallenness of a fallen world, the sinfulness of sin, the sinfulness of sinners. As we look today at the God of the universe who has been made man, treated like a common criminal, placed on trial for his life, spat upon, mocked, beaten. We are to contemplate ourselves. We are to consider what kind of world this is that would treat the God-man Jesus Christ in such a way. And so that will be the theme that we will follow today in this passage, the depravity of man, which is on full display as our Lord goes to trial. We will follow the same path that we followed last week, 
I will start by giving just a general exposition of the passage, and then we will close with two points of application. So first, the general exposition of this passage. Verse 53, we are told Jesus is led to the high priest. Now, the high priest at this time was a man by the name of Caiaphas. Now, what is worth noting about Caiaphas is that Caiaphas was a highly respected high priest. His tenure was 19 years, when in those days, the average tenure for a high priest was about four years. So his tenure is 19 years, probably telling us that this is a very highly respected, venerable high priest within Jewish society and within Israel. In other words, Jesus comes before a highly decorated, supposedly just administrator of God's word. Verse 55, we are told the whole council came together. The council was what was called the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin really was the supreme court for the Jewish people. It was the supreme court for Israel. It was the highest court in the land that would judge cases between the Jewish people and the people within Israel. Uh, It was made up of 70 men with the high priest presiding over the deliberations. Uh, The reason for the 70 was based on the book of Numbers, chapter 11, uh, when the Lord had Moses select 70 elders in order to help him deal with the many legal cases that he had to deal with. So the symbolic nature of the 70 goes back all the way to the Old Testament, specifically to Numbers, chapter 11, and the 70 elders that were elected to help Moses. Uh, the The Sanhedrin, when they tried someone, would sit in a semicircle on elevated seats so that they could see each other. They would be looking at each other, sitting in a semicircle. And the accused man would sit on the seat in the center uh, with these men surrounding him, with these 70 men surrounding them. Uh, You can imagine the intimidating scene that this would have been as Jesus is placed here, seated before these 70 men, questioning him. And the uh, thoughts and ideas of him being the false Messiah. So Christ must have been intimidated to a certain respect. It would have been an extremely intimidating scene. Here is the Lord of glory, the judge of the whole universe on the stand, being judged by mere mortals. What a stark and horrifying display of how truly fallen this fallen world is. Not only is he being judged, but as this passage indicates, he is being judged falsely and unfairly. We are told in verse 56, many bore false witness against him and their testimony didn't agree. Now what's interesting here is that according to Jewish law, in order for there to be conviction, there must be at least two witnesses uh, against the accused. And if their, disp- uh, if their depositions differed from one another in any way, they would be immediately thrown out. Uh, there are many, many Jewish documents that suggest that they took this very, very seriously. If there was any witness and their witness and their uh, testimony contradicted each other in the slightest, their testimony would be thrown out. Yet in verse 60, 
the chief priests asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? Now you have to ask the question, answer to what? Answer to what? The inadmissible, self-contradicting witness? Answer to these people that you should have thrown out as inadmissible? Answer to what? Jesus has no reason to answer. This really is a righteous and just silence from the Lord. He need not open his mouth because there has been nothing brought to him that is worth responding to. These are inadmissible witnesses. If this chief priest were actually doing his job, he would turn to these false witnesses and condemn them. There are many documents that seem to suggest, Jewish legal documents that seem to suggest that false witnesses, if they were caught falsifying evidence, would end up meeting the same end that they were pursuing for the accused, so that they themselves would be killed if they were seeking capital punishment. Yet none of this happens. The chief priests and all there see that these are self-contradictory testimonies, yet the chief priests runs to Christ and says, do you have anything to answer them? Yet again, as we saw last week, all of this is happening in accordance with Scripture. Remember Jesus' words last week in verse 49, where he said, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As Satan orchestrates all this wickedness behind the scenes, little does he know that he is playing right into the hands of Scripture. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Let God's word be true, even, even when it is as ugly as this. Add to this that this is taking place at night. Capital cases were not to be tried unless they were tried in the daytime. They were not to try capital cases at night. Also, trials were not to be conducted either on the Sabbath or on the eve of the Sabbath. Remember, the day for the Jewish people began at sunset. This is Friday, the eve of the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. Acts chapter 12, verse 4, reports that Herod waited till after the Sabbath before he would try Peter. How ironic is it that the Pharisees will question Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath? but they are perfectly fine with breaking their own Sabbath rules when it comes to destroying Christ. And we question total depravity. Verse 54 seems to indicate that this is taking place at the high priest's home. According to tradition, trials were always to take place within the inner courts of the temple, never at the high priest's home. What's more is each trial was to begin with those that would come to bat for the accused first, and then the accusations toward the accused. So we see everything about this trial 
is filled with wickedness, deceit, corruption, and injustice. Yet verse 55, Mark makes perfectly clear why all of this injustice is taking place. Verse 55, because they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Jesus here is utterly helpless. What could Jesus possibly say that would sway these angry dogs? He's not going to get out of here alive, and he knows it. He is guilty even before the trial begins. He certainly is, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, a helpless sheep before his shears. Injustice running rampant from beginning to end, but it just doesn't matter. He is utterly helpless. And who is it that is seeking this testimony against Jesus? It is the most highly decorated court in Israel. It would be like the Supreme Court of our land taking Jesus to trial. And it is presided over by the venerable administrator of God's law, Caiaphas. What is on full display, brothers and sisters, here in our passage is the backwards nature of a fallen world. I say again, and we question total depravity. Caiaphas at this point is frustrated by the false witness. So in verse 61, he gets right to the point, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now this phrase, son of the blessed, is really the same as saying he is the Christ. It was a common phrase that was a phrase that was meant to mean Messiah. So here he's not asking him if he is the eternal son of God, equal with God. He is simply asking the same question with both questions. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Now here we are meant as the audience, as the reading audience, to pause for a moment. We are to pause at this question from Caiaphas to Christ. Here is the climax. Really, here is the decisive moment in the Gospel of Mark. How is Jesus going to respond to this question? One of the unique features of Mark's gospel is that in, in it, in this gospel, he depicts Jesus as constantly seeking to keep his identity a secret. Sometimes what you'll hear, the term you will hear connected to Mark's gospel is the messianic secret. The fact that throughout the gospel of Mark, you have this idea and this theme of, of Jesus keeping his, his title and his identity as Messiah secret. We saw it all the way back in chapter 1 after performing miracles. Uh, Jesus wants the demons to be silent in verse 25. He charges in verse 44 of chapter 1, the man who had leprosy, after he heals him, he charges him to be silent and not to tell anyone. And then in chapter 8, verse 30, of course, after Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, we are told there in chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. So we have this theme running throughout Mark that he is keeping his identity a secret. The only ones he is revealing it to is those in his inner circle, those who are closest to him. And so here you have this moment in the story where his accusers are before him and they ask the question, are you the Christ? How is Jesus 
going to respond. We are to wonder, is he going to continue to keep his identity a secret? But remember what he said back in Gethsemane that we saw a couple weeks back. When his betrayer was at hand in verse 41, he says, the hour has come. Here is the hour when Jesus will give his identity in public, where Jesus will explicitly say that he is the Messiah. He simply says, I am. And the moment he gives his identity is the moment he hands his life over to die. He is Messiah who has come down to die. But with this self-designation, not only comes, down, comes the laying down of his life, but also comes his judgment upon Israel. We see it time and time again that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment upon Israel. And how fitting is it here in Mark 14 when Jesus finally gives that explicit self-designation, that identity of who he is, when he says he is Messiah, what comes upon his lips is clear and explicit judgment upon his people, upon Israel. He uses a combination of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14, and says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The one who is on the stand being judged will soon take the highest judgment seat in the universe. And when he comes again on the clouds of heaven, he will bring judgment upon his judges. Really, isn't that what unbelief is in many ways? Judgment upon Christ. Unbelief is putting Jesus Christ in the docks, putting Jesus Christ on the stand, and we stand over him and tell him who he is and who he isn't. But hear what Jesus Christ promises as he gives his self-designation, is one day he will come and he will judge his judges. He is Messiah who has come to die and he is Messiah who has come to judge rebellious Israel, to judge her judges. The injustice of Israel's judges are about to be replaced by Messiah judge who will hold court over heaven and earth from the right hand of God the Father. And the process, the means by which he will make his way to that right hand of God the Father is by going through the injustice he is now a recipient of. He will be the just king. He currently is the reigning and just king because he has gone through the injustice of an unbelieving world represented here by the Sanhedrin. Verse 63, the chief priest rips his garment. Now, this was a common way of expressing distress and and mourning within Jewish culture. It was a, a demonstrative way that one would show mourning when one would show sorrow over something. So here you have this 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 chief priest showing this demonstrative sort of flamboyant way of showing sorrow and distress and mourning at the self-designation of his Lord. Oh, how sad and distressing that this blasphemer has come into our midst. It would be funny if it weren't so sad 
and tragic. He is charged with blasphemy because he has designated himself to be the Messiah. It was considered blasphemous within the ancient world for the Jewish people if Messiah designated himself Messiah. It was always to be held that that the Father, God the Father in heaven, was the one that would designate the Messiah the Messiah. So this is blasphemy in the sense that Jesus Christ seems to be designating himself Messiah and not the Father from heaven. But remember Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River back in chapter 1, when he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. Messiah literally means anointed one. And God the Father from heaven speaks to his Son, and he says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You have to imagine Jesus Christ here, as he's has all of this counsel, all 70 of these men against him, all of these witnesses telling him he is not who he is, who he says he is. He must have been hanging on to those words of his father so long ago. Those same words that he would hear back in chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here in this moment, as his father is leaving him, getting farther and farther away from him as he goes towards the cross, and on that cross, when his father will turn his head away from him, you have to imagine in the loneliness and in the darkness, he is hanging on to those words that I am the Messiah, that I am the beloved son, that my father has designated me to be so, even if my accusers don't believe me. I know my father's words are true. We are told in verse 65, they began to spit on him and cover his face so that they could slap him and then mockingly ask him to prophesy as to who slapped him. The guards received him with blows. It seems to indicate as he is taken and led to the guards. You have this image, it seems, where he's done and they're, they're leading him to the guards, and upon receiving Jesus, they slap him in the face. It's a despicable sight, a sight you can read over and over again, and it still bowls us over. And I say again, we question total depravity, which leads me into our first point of application. We are part of this injustice. We are part of this injustice. When you read this passage, you might have thought that verse 54 was somehow misplaced. Verse 54, which reads, And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. That verse seems to be somewhat misplaced here in a passage that is all about Jesus' trial, yet Yet Mark interjects it here right at the front, giving us an indicator that that Peter is there following Jesus, that he is warming himself by the fire. Why does Mark interject verse 54? Well, first, I think it gives us a deeper understanding of what we will read of next week when Peter will deny his Lord three times. It's an indication to us that while this cruel activity is taking place inside the quarters of the high priest, Peter is outside at the same time denying 
his Lord. It's a time indicator from Mark, letting us know that while Jesus is the victim of cruel injustice, his best friend is rejecting him. Remember who it is, according to tradition, who is feeding Mark his information for this gospel. It is Peter. And it's almost as though Peter is putting in this verse 54 here for us 2,000 years later so that we might not be tempted to say, can you believe how ugly these people are? Man, what reprobates. I believe in total depravity for people like this. This is Stalin, Hitler-like activity. I believe people like this. I believe in hell for people like this. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that so often we might utter the orthodox words that, yes, I deserve hell. But deep down inside, we say to ourselves so often, nah, me, these people, sure, absolutely, but, but eternal darkness, eternal death, for me, nah. Where's Christ's best friend? when this Hitler and Stalin-like activity is taking place? Where is one of the inspired writers of Scripture when this hell-deserving treatment is taking place? He is outside siding with the injustice that is going on inside. We are part of this injustice. We are part of this horrifying action that is taking place before our eyes. We are deserving of hell itself. Second and final point of application. If we be in Christ by faith, we will be the objects of injustice. If we be in Christ by faith, we will be the objects of injustice. Verse 55 is shocking. The whole council was seeking testimony to kill him. The whole council. There was not one dissenting voice among the 70 that stood up and said, this is wrong. This is taking place at night. It should be taking place during the day. What are we doing? This should be taking place in the inner court of the temple, not at the high priest's home. Listen to these self-contradicting witnesses. This is wrong. What are we doing? Not one dissenting voice among the 70 stood up and said, this is unrighteous. But all of them together, every single one of them together, seeking a way to kill him. Brothers and sisters, if we say we are followers of Christ, this is the Christ we say we follow. One who has the whole group, not with one dissenting voice against him. And this isn't some unsophisticated hoodlums, unsophisticated individuals getting together to take Christ out. No, this is the most sophisticated, well-respected men in society garbed in all the external elements of law and justice, seeking to snuff out Christ. Is it any wonder why when we look through the pages of church history, 
what we see time and time again is not faithful, not faithful Christians meeting their end in a street corner, but faithful Christians meeting their end before respected men and women in society, before respected governments, the most sophisticated men in the country, men and women that you would see as impressive any other day of the week, surrounded by an atmosphere that supposedly cries out law and order. And it is men and women united together for one purpose, to snuff out Christ. Honor, reason, law and order goes out the window when Christ is on trial. Honor, reason, law, and order goes out the window when Christ's people are on trial. Because we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual wickedness in high places. But what we learn from Jesus' words here is that we have a judge whose seat is even higher and who will come one day on the clouds of heaven and bring justice to reign in full bloom at long last. As we unite ourselves to Christ and become the victims of injustice in high places, might the Lord place before our eyes the one who is even higher, who alone we are to be accountable to. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have come down in the person of your son, that you have taken upon yourself flesh, and not flesh that uh, took upon himself supernatural power so as to curb around the injustices of this world, but one that went right into the teeth of the lion for us. And so might we now see Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father due to that humiliation that he endured, in this trial and as we will see in a few weeks at the cross. And might we pick up our cross and follow after him and hold him our one and only and true judge before our eyes as we seek to live out our life for Christ in a world that hates him. Bless us, we pray. Pour out your spirit of strength, uniting us to our judge, to our king of heaven, that we might always seek to do that which honors him and lifts him high, that we might lift high the cross in all our activities, in all our engagements, in every single facet of our lives, so that you would be honored, and that our judge, our king, our Christ would be magnified. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn, He Leadeth Me.